This is the Magic Detective Podcast, and this is Episode 9, Part 2 of The Amazing Life of Harry Keller. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode nine, and it's a part two of the life of Harry Keller. Before I get into part two, though, there are some things, uh, some news. I found out just yesterday that a good friend of mine, Denny Haney, the owner and operator of Denny and Lee's Magic Shop in Baltimore, Maryland, has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. Denny is is much more than just a magic shop owner. He has been a mentor to hundreds of magicians across the globe, including me. I, I can't tell you how many hours I spent at Denny's shop, especially in the early years, just talking to him about the magic business and the proper to, proper way to present magic and, and illusions. And his insight and, and knowledge was invaluable. Denny, he's continued to do that same thing for countless people who are seriously interested in magic. And uh, how did he get so knowledgeable from just running a magic shop, you might wonder? Well, he didn't run just a magic shop. Uh, Long before he opened uh, Denny and Lee's Magic Shop, he was a full-time professional. Uh, And Denny did it all. He was a school show magician back in the 60s. He went into the service and he served in the Vietnam War, and he continued to tour Asian countries after he was discharged. Uh, He worked the college circuit in the 70s and 80s, and I guess early 90s, and he worked, uh, he was a very busy corporate magician as well. Denny was a graduate of the Chavez College of Magic and always included some sort of uh, manipulation in his show. He was adept with illusions just as well as he was with any sort of card manipulation. And now, now Denny needs our help. His medical bills are going to be enormous. And uh, a GoFundMe page has been set up to assist him. The last I checked, they had raised over $11,000, but he's going to need more. So uh, from what I understand, Denny's still working at the shop, still answering the phones. All I can say is if you've ever been helped by Denny or inspired by Denny in any way, please consider giving to his GoFundMe page. You can find it. Just go to GoFundMe.com. Go, uh, it's G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E.com, GoFundMe.com, in the upper left-hand corner, you'll see a little uh, magnifying glass. It says search next next to that. Just hit the search button and type in Denny Haney, and uh, you'll you'll see the page for um, to help out Denny. And you could also uh, you could also purchase something from DennyMagic.com or give them a call and uh, and and purchase something from the shop. Any of those things will help out Denny. And uh, in this time right now, he could use all the help uh, we can give him. So. Um, my prayers are with Denny, and uh, I hope this all works out. So that's uh, some unfortunate news. Um, secondly, some cheerier news. I mentioned in my previous podcast, uh, I had a international Houdini documentary that was going to be appearing sometime soon, and sure enough, it did. It, it uh, appeared, uh, of course, over in France. It was international, France and Germany, but you could see it online if you want. 
I actually forgot at the time I mentioned it last time that it was dubbed over in French and dubbed over in German. So that's kind of cool. So if you speak either, you'll really enjoy the content. Uh, if you don't speak either of those things, it's only a seven minute segment and it's full of photos of Houdini and me with the Washington uh, Capitol behind me. So that's pretty cool. Um, if, just go to my uh, my blog, which is themagicdetective.com, and you'll see um, you'll see a, the article there on the uh, Houdini documentary. And there's links to the uh, pages, so you can watch the videos. And they're like I said, they're pretty cool. Uh, finally, one other thing I did on my blog, I've added a special page on the blog for all the Magic Detective podcasts. So uh, if you're on the blog, if you're a regular reader of the blog, you can just go over. It's on the far left-hand side of the blog. It's listed under a section called Pages, and it just says Magic History Podcast. If you click that, all the podcasts will come up from the Magic Detective Podcast. So that's all the news that I have for you now. Let's get into part two of the amazing life of Harry Keller. When we left off with Keller, uh, he was using a bird cage to rebuild his show. And by the way, I did make one mistake, uh, one small mistake uh, in the previous episode. I said that Keller had wired his father for some money while he was stranded in England. And that is actually incorrect. That was my mistake. Keller actually got a loan from Junius Spencer Morgan, who was a U.S. banker who was uh, stationed in London there. Incidentally, uh, Mr. Morgan was also the father of the famous financier J.P. Morgan. It only took Keller a few months before he was able to repay the loan, at which point he resumed his tour, this time without uh, William Bay. Instead, he headed a new troupe that he called the Royal Illusionists. It was a curious name considering there were no large-scale illusions in the show, with, the, of course, the exception of the Davenport Spirit Cabinet, if you can call that an illusion. One of the features of the show was the aforementioned vanishing birdcage, which Keller dubbed the flying cage. Another popular piece in his show was his classic coffee vase routine from piles of shredded paper. Keller would make sugar and milk and a whole container of hot coffee magically appear from nowhere. In 1877, Keller added another new trick to his show, something that would be known as the Keller flower growth. It, too, was a popular trick of the time, but Keller's version of it must have been uh, unique enough that his name was forever attached to it. And one of the most surprising pieces of Keller's routine was the fact that the flowers that appeared were genuine, and he would cut them and toss them out to audience members. Now, the royal illusionists consisted of Keller a fellow by the name of Yamadeva, and another fellow named Ling Luk. These latter two people were actually brothers, Ferdinand and Louis Guder. A fourth member, A. Litherland Kennard, was also with the show, but he left early on. Uh, while uh, in on tour in Shanghai, Yamadeva and Keller were engaged in a game of 10 pins, which I'm assuming is some early version of bowling. And during the game, Yamadeva began to shriek in pain. He grabbed his chest and and just, just screaming. And uh, later that day, he passed away. His brother, Ling Luk, became severely depressed over the death of his brother. And within a few months' time, he too passed away. Keller had to find new members for his royal illusionist's troupe. And he found two gentlemen, one who also performed a quick change act. 
Keller resumed the world tour, going to Burma, Calcutta, Ceylon, Bombay, and more. The tour took a short break when they returned to London in June of 1878, and it was here that Keller picked up a new member of the company who would remain with him for many years to come. The new member, however, was not a living human being, but rather a mechanical man. Uh, Keller had seen Maskelyne's psycho-automaton at Egyptian Hall, and he wanted one for himself. And he was able to find someone who was able to make a reproduction, and Keller had a psycho for his own show. As a side note, the masculine psycho still exists today and can be seen at the Museum of Science in London. Harry Keller's psycho also still exists today and is in the collection of Magic Builder Supreme, John Gone. If I can find it, there's a YouTube video of psycho in action, and I'll post that on my blog as uh, like side notes to episode 9. Quickly, though, if you're not familiar with Keller's psycho, he was uh, kind of the figure of a small man sitting cross-legged on a table. Beneath the table, there was a wide, clear glass tube, and this was there to demonstrate that there were no wires or anything connected to the automaton. Psycho uh, played a game called, it was a card game called Whist, and from all accounts was Quite, uh, he was quite proficient at the game. The Royal Illusionists continued to tour up until 1879, but despite the names on the bill being Keller, Cunard, and Morris, it was Psycho that received the largest billing. In 1879, Keller was appearing in Philadelphia and had a really bad run. And that was mainly because only months before, a beloved magical performer had died there by the name of Robert Heller. Heller was one of the biggest names in magic during that time period, and he died suddenly during a run of performances, and audiences thought that Harry Keller was trying to take advantage of his death and his name. And as it was, Keller had actually changed the spelling of his own name years earlier from Keller with an E-R to Keller with an A-R so he wouldn't be confused with Robert Heller, but it was happening anyway. Keller's next stop was, well, it was hardly any better. He went to Washington, D.C. to open at Ford's Theater, and again, tiny audiences. What's interesting, this is the exact opposite route that Robert Heller had. Uh, Robert Heller had performed in Washington, D.C., when I say 1878, and then went on to Philadelphia and then passed away from what we believe is pneumonia. Due to the poor ticket sales at Ford's Theater, Keller also offered a spiritualism expose over at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. And this is, this is wild. So he offers to expose the spirit mediums and their methods. And the way he does it is by first performing his own spirit cabinet and then revealing how he does the spirit cabinet. As it turned out, there were far more people at the National Theater to see the spiritualism expose than all of his shows combined in Washington. So um, when it was all over, he actually had some money. So it worked out well for him. This, however would be the end of his American tour. Uh, Keller felt his luck would be better served to return to the world tour, so in April, uh, they sailed off to Brazil. And after traveling throughout South America, the Keller troupe was on their way to Europe once again in 1882. This clever poem appeared in the paper. For many a day we have heard people say, 
that a wondrous magician was Heller. Change the H into K and the E into A, and you have his superior in Keller. So I guess enough time had passed where people didn't feel like uh, Harry Keller was taking advantage of, of Robert Heller. And here you've got a newspaper making this uh, interesting poem. In 1884, there's an interesting twist to the Keller story. For a number of years previous, Keller would visit Egyptian Hall in London. You know, I mentioned a few minutes ago about that's where he, he discovered Psycho and had a, a copy of Psycho made. This would be his go-to place to get new material for his shows, though none of it, well, actually, that's not true. One thing was gained by legitimate means, but the rest of it was not. Uh, and Keller loved the idea of, of Egyptian Hall. He loved the idea of having his own home theater. So in 1884, Keller opened his own version of Egyptian Hall in Philadelphia. And the new Egyptian hall would be housed at the Masonic Temple in Philadelphia. This temple itself had a theater seating of about 2,200. And the building had this just incredible old world facade to it. The show presented at Keller's Egyptian hall just sounds incredible. He opened with uh, a simple but visual vanishing handkerchief transposition that he called the spiritual decanters. Next was something he called visible transformation. This was his own take on the ink to water routine invented by Hofzinser. But with Keller, the effect was a glass of water and a glass of ink actually changed places. Next on the bill was uh, the obedient cards, which again was uh, Keller's kind of clever twist on the rising cards along with a spirit bell um, included. The Marabout Mocha is what Keller called his coffee vase trick that I mentioned earlier. And the Fairy Flower Trees was Keller's flower growth that I also mentioned a little bit earlier. I had heard that uh, Keller's flower growth was a complete course in misdirection and I was always very curious about it. And by the way, it does appear in several books, but not all the books accurately describe the routine and the different sequences. It is very elaborate and highly deceptive. Next, we have another classic piece of magic Keller called this routine, The Enchanted Casket. And this was an elaborate version of the nest of boxes with multiple borrowed rings appearing inside the innermost box. One ring, however, does not appear in the box. It's missing. Keller tries to shift gears by doing a version of the inexhaustible bottle and handing out drinks to audience members. And when the bottle is empty, Keller takes the bottle breaks it, and inside the bottle is found a live guinea pig with a ribbon around its neck, and that ribbon holds the missing ring on the ribbon. So pretty cool uh, take on the nest of boxes there. And if I can just take another detour for a moment, the famous 20th century illusionist Aldo Ricciardi, he actually presented a version of the borrowed ring trick as well in his show. And in his version, I think... Um, there are one or two rings that are not returned. And, and later, those rings are found, uh, if a memory serves, around the neck of a dove that is produced from a dove pan. Uh, I hope I have that correct. Um, I remember seeing it. There was a, um, a video, it may be online, of Ricciardi performing in Atlantic City, and that routine was uh, included in that particular uh, 
a show. And the reason, the only reason I mention it is because if you, uh, if you look at the, you listen to what these historical magicians did, uh, here's Keller doing a really elaborate version of the nest of boxes. And then years and years later, Ricciardi, uh, is also doing a kind of his take on Keller's routine. And it just goes to show how strong the material is and, and just another great reason to dig into magic history. So you, you know, you may find a gem that some old timer did that could be revamped today and, in you know, in a different way, but updated and revamped. So just a little tip there. Anyway, back to Keller's show. He included uh, slight writing and a spirit hand routine. And of course, his buddy Psycho, the whist playing automaton, was in the show. And we're not even into intermission yet with all this material. But I'm going to skip past the, uh, some of the other routines. And I want to get into Keller's version of this Davenport spirit cabinet. Now listen to this. He's tied by a committee from the audience. And he sits in a chair inside the cabinet. The doors are closed, and no sooner are they closed, and you hear this ringing bells and shaking tambourines and the typical thing you you associate with a uh, spirit cabinet. The doors are open, and Keller is found still tied. The doors are closed again, and a moment later, he comes out free from the bonds, untied. Just a great moment of escapology. Then... Keller is tied yet again, but this time he does it on the stage, not inside the cabinet. Now, from what I gather, they probably held a cloth up in front of him, and the same thing happens. The bells ring and the tambourines and all that. So he's able to do it even without being in the inside the cabinet. The next item on the bill was Keller's Great Levitation Act. Uh, this was not his Keller levitation that I'll talk about later. This was this was something different. This was Keller himself. He would seem to rise from the stage right up to the dome of the theater and then back down. Uh, but now the finale, the spirit cabinet. So Keller has already pre presented the spirit cabinet. He's been inside the spirit cabinet. Here's what they do now. They take spirit cabinet completely apart and let it be examined so audience members get to check out this whole thing it's put back together a small stool with bells and tambourines is put inside the cabinet but this time no one goes inside the cabinet it's empty except for this stool with the the bells and stuff on it the doors are closed and all of a sudden you hear you know the bells ringing the tambourine shaking it's crazy because nobody's in there it's really, really, it's a really cool take on it because he's already done it himself. And of course, you know, it, and the natural inclination, I guess, for our audience member is, well, you know, how did he ring that even though he was tied up? But here it happens again and there's no one in the cabinet. So this is uh, the essence of the show that he was doing at Egyptian Hall. Great magic, great mysteries, automaton, spirit magic. I'm sure the whole thing was filled with comedy. Proof of the popularity of the show was that it ran for 264 performances before Keller closed it down. Now you might be wondering, wait a minute, if it was so successful, why did it close? And now I'm only speculating, but there are several potential reasons. One, uh, Keller was only leasing the building. He didn't own it. So there's that. He closed it just before summer. So in that time period, uh, most theaters closed during the summer because of the heat. And was, this was before air conditioning. And third, uh, it's very possible the original lease was only for a set period of time. But regardless, 
uh, Keller was ready to take on bigger things. Now, if we fast forward to November 1st, 1887, Keller takes on a really big thing. He gets married. He marries Eva Medley, whom he first uh, (laughs) first met uh, years before in Australia. Eva Medley was her real name. She first performed in the show as a cornet soloist, and her stage name was Eva Hewitt. Eventually, uh, Eva became a larger part of the show, presenting a second sight routine along with Harry Keller. Also in 1887, William Robinson and his wife Dot joined the Keller show. William Robinson is often referred to during this time period as the most knowledgeable man in magic. Having him in your corner could only spell success. Oddly, despite uh, Robinson's knowledge, it would actually take a number of performing uh, failures before Robinson was able to become successful on his own accord. But that's for another podcast. Over the past couple years, Keller has slowly been stepping into the role of illusionist. The Davenport Spirit Cabinet was good, but the routine where the cabinet is taken apart and rebuilt in front of the audience and then strange manifestations happen, that's pure illusion. Then you have Keller's Great Levitation Act, which I will admit, um, it might not have really been great. Uh, And I take that from some of the newspaper accounts that I read, because basically in order for Keller to float up to the dome of the, uh, the theater, the lights had to all be turned out and just a couple lanterns uh, lit up the stage, handheld lanterns. So I think you kind of get an idea of what might have been involved to create that mystery. So uh, not every mystery is a mystery, I guess. But let me talk about some of the other uh, illusions. Uh, one of the early ones was an in, actually an invention of Bautier de Colta, and it was built by William Robinson. This mystery was called the cocoon. And it began with a piece of paper in a frame on which uh, a caterpillar is drawn. And the image slowly breaks open to reveal a cocoon. And the cocoon is lowered onto a small stool-like table. And out of the cocoon bursts the final surprise, Dot Robinson wearing a butterfly costume. I, I, I... I've never seen this effect. I would love to see this. It sounds amazing. Uh, Soon after this, Keller added a new levitation. This was called Astarte, and it was co-created by William Robinson and B.B. Keys. And it was a very unusual levitation that allowed magicians to, or magician's assistant to float upright, turn, even do handsprings and somersaults in the air. Was Astarte a great levitation? No. But it was better than the previous Great Levitation Act that Keller had used. Uh, The illusions started coming fast and furiously, partly because of Keller's uh, trips to London and his trips to Egyptian Hall uh, in London. Uh, He also had the opportunity to meet Charles Moritz, the famed creator of many wonderful effects. Uh, Flido was one of Moritz's first uh, illusions that found its way into Keller's show. In 1892... Keller began to present a very amazing mystery called O. And I surmise it was given that name because uh, that's the expression from the audience when they witnessed the effect. Uh, Probably, okay, not O, but it was more like, oh, maybe that was it. Okay. And it, it appeared to be a pure challenge type effect. There was a chair on the stage. Uh, the magician's assistant sat in the chair. 
a steel plate would be slid underneath the chair to prevent them from going down any sort of trap door or any nonsense like that. There was a small curtain cabinet that went around the spectator sitting in the chair. And what would happen is, is the, uh, the magician's assistant would, would put one hand out through the curtain so a spectator could hold on to the, the assistant's hand. Uh, the, on the other side, there was a, like a ring with a cord on it. And the magician's assistant would hold on to the, uh, hold on to the ring. The cord went outside the cabinet, had another, uh, uh, ring on the outside. So another spectator could hold on to that. And what they would do is they would move the assistant's arm up and down, uh, while they were in there. So it was like impossible for the person to get out of here. You had one spectator holding on to them from one side, the other one holding their hand on the, on the opposite side. The curtain was closed and just in just a couple seconds, the whole thing was opened. Lo and behold, the magician's assistant was gone. Robinson would contribute another visual illusion to the show with an effect called Out of Sight. Uh, this was also a chair, but this one this chair had four ropes tied to it and the ropes were uh, the ropes actually hoisted the chair uh, into the air uh, about 8 feet or so. And I should mention a female assistant would be sitting in the chair when it was hoisted upwards. Keller would shoot a pistol, and by the way, this, this pistol shooting thing was common back then. They used a starter pistol, and it fired blanks, and um, it just kind of signified the moment of the magic, you know, bang, and that's when the, mo- the, the magic happened. And, but in this case, when they fired the pistol, the assistant vanished in midair. Uh, the, the chair would actually fall to the ground and slam on the ground, but without any covering or anything, the magician's assistant would vanish. Uh, interestingly enough, the trick was also nicknamed how to get rid of a wife. They just love that. It's fantastic. Okay. Speaking of Robinson in 1892, William Robinson and his wife dot left the Keller show and went to work for Keller's chief competitor, Alexander Herman, a starte and out of sight. Both made their way into Herman's show over time as well. Thanks to Robinson, though they, they, they went by different names when they were in the Herman show. And Keller, he vanishes from the performing world for several months, like almost seven months uh, following the departure of William Robinson and his wife Dot. And it's likely the absence of these uh, two affected the Keller show to the point where he couldn't continue. Dot Robinson, for example, was key to making the cocoon illusion successful and uh, it was permanently removed from the show after her departure. Keller would not remain silent forever. In March 1893, Alexander Herman performed at the Park Opera House in Erie, Pennsylvania. This was Keller's hometown. And about 14 days after the great Herman appeared, Keller opened his show at the Park Opera House for two nights. Flido was added to the show that night, as was the out-of-sight illusion. And I should mention that uh, though it was invented, uh, though the um, out-of-sight was invented and built by Robinson, it apparently had had issues that caused it not to work. And this particular night in Erie, Pennsylvania, was the first time it was presented in front of an audience, and uh, it was a hit. Keller kept it in his show for many years after. Uh, One point I'd like to make about Keller and Herman was that despite the fact that they both had a start day in their show, they both had out of sight in their shows, their styles and presentations were so different that it just didn't seem the same. 
Herman, for example, had a very devilish appearance and um, was known to be quite humorous with his patter. Keller's appearance was clearly different from Herman. After all, he by this time, he was completely bald. And, uh, and for the most part, they did very different material. And as I mentioned, um, even when they did do similar tricks, they were presented differently. How different is that from today when many performers do the same tricks, the same jokes, the same line, same everything? Think the, uh, the sketch pad with the bowling ball. Back to Keller. Keller's career flourished, as did his abundant use of advertising posters. His full-color lithographs were beautiful representations of many of his illusions, and, and uh, some of the posters were just three-quarter images of Keller himself. Most, if not all, the posters included devilish imps. In fact, a couple of his posters featured Mephistopheles himself. Keller's status as a magician often had him going head-to-head with other top magicians like Alexander Herman, I just mentioned, and Robert Heller, of course. And, of course, uh, Heller passed away in 1878. Herman passed away in 1896. And once they were out of the way, the field was clear for Keller to be the top magician in the country. Each year, Keller added new mysteries to his show, and he often tweaked some of the old routines. One in particular was his second sight routine that uh, he had originally learned this second sight routine, by the way, from Haiti Heller, who was, um, they used to say she was Robert Heller's sister, but there was actually no real relation there. But he learned second sight from Haiti Heller. Um, And he also learned other techniques on second sight from other magicians, and he added those different techniques to his second sight routine to make it even stronger. Keller did continue to add magic to his show, uh, much of which, as I mentioned previous, uh, came from John Neville Maskelyne in 1904. While in London for the summer, Keller saw the greatest mystery of his life, the masculine levitation. The beauty of this effect far exceeded any of Keller's previous levitations. In the masculine levitation, the person really looked like they were floating on air. The floating assistant would rise far above the head of the magician, and the magician could even pass a hoop over the floating lady's body. And Keller saw it, and he had to have it. But he was turned down, naturally. So he did the next best thing. Keller hired Paul Valadon, who was a magician who had been working at Egyptian Hall, and he knew the inner workings of the levitation quite well. Keller invited him to uh, to join him in America to tour with his own show. Uh, and I believe there was also talk of Valadon becoming Keller's successor. Now, when Valadon came over to America, the first thing Keller did was have him work on a version of the masculine levitation, but there would be a big difference between the masculine version and the Keller version. The masculine levitation was built into a theater. It was not made to travel. The new Keller levitation was designed to be moved from theater to theater. Their efforts produced one of the most beautiful magic effects the world has ever seen. Another contribution of Paul Valadon was his illusion called Well, I'm. It consisted of a table with a magician. Uh, A magician would stand on top of the table holding a large cloth or drape. The female assistant would join him on the table and be covered by the cloth. And just briefly, a moment later, the cloth would be whisked away and the assistant was gone. Valadon called it, well, I'm. 
Apparently, after Valadon left the show, Keller began to present the effect, but under the title Gone. And this all gets a little confusing when you consider that Robinson's illusion that was known as Out of Sight was actually originally called Gone or The Gone Chair. But, um, but Gone was, in this particular case, was, was uh, Paul Valadon's Well, I'm, as presented by Harry Keller. Paul Valadon's knowledge came in handy when he suggested to Keller to add another masculine routine called The Will, The Witch, and The Watchman. It was a magic playlet, complete with illusions and needed a cast of several people. Keller renamed his version The Witch, The Sailor, and The Enchanted Monkey. Sadly, Paul Valadon never became the successor of The Keller Show. Apparently, it had something to do with uh, Valadon's drinking problem, along with Eva Keller's drinking problem. And the two uh, had a lot of tension behind the scenes, and eventually it got so bad that Keller, Mr. Keller, decided uh, to look elsewhere for his successor. And he didn't look very far. The successor would be Howard Thurston. The year was 1907, and Harry Keller was, without a doubt, the greatest magician in America at the time. The young, world-traveling magician, Howard Thurston, was ready to move up on the show business ladder and offered to buy Keller's entire show. In 1907, uh, Harry Keller was 58 years old, and he was ready to retire. With Thurston taking the entire show off his hands, it would allow Keller a, a fine retirement, um, free from having to store or travel with the old show at all. The agreed-upon fee was $5,000 for Keller's entire show, and this is the equivalent of uh, $134,062 today. The stipulation was that Keller and Thurston would tour together for a year, and then at the final show, Keller would hand the mantle of magic over to Thurston. Keller went to England one more time to find one final illusion to include in this uh, last tour. And he chose a masculine effect called the Specter of the Sanctum. And for the first time, Keller paid for the rights to use this illusion. And for the first time also, Masculine's name appeared in the Keller programs. Uh, Keller did rename the prop the Specter Cabinet. And if you're curious about what it was... I believe from what I'm reading that the Spectre Cabinet is what was presented on NBC TV back in the 1990s as the Blue Room. But in reality, it was the Spectre Cabinet. And I think if if I've understood everything correctly, um, that the Blue Room was slightly different than uh, the Spectre Cabinet, uh, just based on the methodology. Uh, it was used, by the way, it was used to create spirit forms and manifestations, but in real time, right before the eyes of the audience, so they could see ghosts materializing and disappearing. And uh, Newspaper accounts gave it kind of uh, mixed reviews, and I think, I think this had more to do with the fact that maybe it, was, uh, it suffered from a poor routine more than anything else, because having seen this presented on TV, it's very strong. So I think it just came down to the routine. Keller and Thurston toured for a year. Keller would open the show uh, with many of his famous tricks and illusions. Thurston would do the second part of the show, and the finale was the Spectre Cabinet, which they both presented together. The final performance was at Ford's Theater in Baltimore on May 9th, 1908. And this is where Keller handed over the mantle of magic to his young successor. And then the entire audience sang 
Auld Lang Syne. It was a powerful and iconic moment in magic history. And sadly, Ford's Theater in Baltimore has long since been torn down. It is now a parking garage, which is unfortunately the fate of many old theaters here in America and uh, probably in, in Europe as well. There is one illusion I want to mention during uh, 1905. Uh, 1905, David Devant over uh, was working at Maskelyne's uh, Theater, Egyptian Hall, and had teamed up with Maskelyne, and he produced an illusion that was called the Mascot Moth. A very beautiful and very amazing mystery, and they decided to send the Mascot Moth illusion to America. Uh, they would have a uh, magician Max Sterling present it along with some other Devant creations. So the mascot moth finds its way to America. And um, from several of the newspaper accounts that I read concerning its presentation, it was uh, less than stellar. And that was mainly because it was a very difficult mystery to perform correctly. There were just so many things that could go wrong, and apparently they often did go wrong. Somewhere along the way in 1905, Harry Keller sees a performance of the mascot moth. I guess on this particular night or whatever, it went well, and it was amazing. And uh, Keller decided he wanted one for himself, so he had Martinka's build a mascot moth that he could perform in his show, his was called The Golden Butterfly. And I mention this because Keller had a poster made of it, and it's one of the most beautiful magic posters, certainly, that Keller ever produced. And so I think it may be the only magic poster that Keller produced where he's not featured in the poster itself. It's just an image of a woman with butterfly wings, and it's amazing. And I'm going to guess that the poster was more amazing than the actual trick, because uh, Keller, like Max Sterling before him, appeared to have problems performing their version of the mascot moth as well. But, but oh, hey, come on, makes an incredible poster. And also, in regards to the mascot moth, so you had, uh, of course, Devant performing the mascot moth. You'd have Max Sterling performing the mascot moth. You had Keller performing his version called the Golden Butterfly. Years later, you had Doug Henning, who performed the mascot moth on Broadway in the play Merlin. And then you also had uh, Siegfried and Roy presented the mascot moth in their show, apparently every night. But like Masculine and Devant, their version of mascot moth was in one theater. They weren't traveling around with it, which um, I guess made it easier to perform. And that's going to do it for episode nine, The Amazing Life of Harry Keller. Uh, Harry Keller's life is not over. This is just where he gets to retirement. And um, I'm going to do one more podcast on Harry Keller, uh, basically Harry Keller and the retirement days, because there are some very fascinating things that happened during his retirement. Um, one of those being the friendship that he develops with Harry Houdini. So uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be uh, coming down the road. But for now, thanks for listening to the Magic Detective Podcast. If you could, down below, please like the podcast. And if you're so inclined, please leave a comment about the podcast as well. Anytime you do that, it helps me out um, in my rankings and everything. So I appreciate that, especially if you're listening on iTunes or, or Stitcher or uh, Podbean or 
any of the other 12 different places where the Magic Detective podcast can be found because I'm on just about every platform. Uh, recently, what was the most recent one? I think that was um, Spotify. Spotify, which is a little more harder to find because on Spotify, it's mostly music. So you have to go to their podcast section. Once you go to the podcast section, then you can look up the Magic Detective podcast and find me there. Anyway, um, I appreciate everyone that listens and um, I'll have another episode out here before too long, very shortly, hopefully before the end of the year. And until then, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Have a great holiday and we will talk to you soon.